The trip from San Francisco took 28 days. Uh, on the 28th day, we woke up in the morning and the ship seemed very solid. I scrambled up the stairs as soon as I got awake. And we couldn't see the land, but the ship was stopped and anchored. And there was quite a fog on the, on the bay. But as you looked up, you could see this breathtaking view above the fog. And the sun was shining on Mount Fuji. It was the most uh, beautiful sight and surprising sight I think I've ever seen in my life. You're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, Occupation. Hi, Therese. It's Monday morning, November 15th. Reporting into you from Yuma, Arizona. Lori and I have been down here about a week and we're kind of getting settled in. So maybe I uh, thought I'd start to attempt it. You realize I'm not a storyteller and I thought I'd just start to tell you about the uh, situations and the times and the different experiences. And you're the one that's going to have to make a story out of it. Okay? This story starts in the late fall of 1944. I just turned 18 in October. Well, I received my greetings from Uncle Sam about two weeks after my 18th birthday and was soon on my way to a small army base just south of Denver. During that summer of 1945, the war in Japan was starting to go our way. Arthur would return victoriously and express new confidence that the Japs will be smashed into unconditional surrender. We moved troops from uh, the European theater over into the South Pacific. The Japanese made their final desperate stand. There was uh, many casualties. There is an excellent outlook for a permanent peace in the whole of the Pacific area. More than a million of our troops during the month of July 1945 and into the first part of August, we sent bomber after bomber over uh, Japan with firebombs, literally uh, burning their cities to the ground. It was uh, definitely a scorched earth policy. Let us pray that peace be now restored to the world. There wasn't um, much left of the cities. And that God will preserve it Always. In the month of August, I think it's about the middle or to the latter part of it, uh, we had two uh, bombers. One was called the Ilona Gay. Uh, she dropped the, that plane dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Two or three days later, the, the B-29 called Boxcar dropped the second bomb on Nagasaki. 
This seemed to get their attention. This is surrender. It wasn't many days they were surrendering with General MacArthur and the uh, Japanese people, the, the people in power. The fleet that the Japanese meant to destroy forever at Pearl Harbor comes back to stay. Admiral Halsey and the officers and men of the United States Navy are nearing the final goal. Years later, there were people who criticized President Truman for dropping the atomic bomb on Japan. And they were outraged and very vocal about the cruelty of my generation. But in my opinion, one generation should never criticize another generation because they didn't live in that time. They didn't have the, the feelings of, uh, that the propaganda would inject into the people. Anyway, I was a uh, young 18-year-old kid, not too smart, but I was smart enough to know I was, I was very happy they dropped a, uh, the big one. This all happened while I was on furlough and uh, riding the train into California. In fact, I think they signed the peace treaty the day we loaded up on our troop ship, headed out to San Francisco Bay and out under the Golden Gate Bridge. It was, a, it was in the evening, going under the uh, Golden Gate Bridge and starting to feel the, the swells of the ocean. As an 18-year-old kid, it, it seemed like uh, it was the start of a great adventure. original destination was to a staging area north of the Philippine Islands. About two days out, we were re rerouted because of the uh, dramatic effect brought about by the uh, two atomic bombs. Brought a quick, quick surrender, fortunately. The rest of the trip into uh, Japan was uneventful. We were uh, dis we disembarked and we were loaded on trucks and taken to an area just on the edge of Yokohama. There didn't seem to be any big hurry of uh, signing us. I think everybody was just kind of relaxed and taking their breath. The service people had fought months before through the islands. They just were laying around and, and uh, just happy that the sun come up every day. The next few days, I spent uh, every moment I could outside the camp exploring the countryside. I came across a large orchard, I believe it was an apple orchard, and underneath the trees there were about a hundred planes hidden under the leaf canopy. Nice, neat rows. I ever found out that these were these planes were general aircraft that people were trying to hide from our uh, bombing or um, they were kamikaze pilots, kind of the last draw, a kamikaze type of thing. Uh, it was a beautiful day, and the sun was filtering through the leaf canopy, and I was the only person there, and I could just go from aircraft to aircraft. It was kind of like uh, 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 the dying of a country or the giving up, or it's hard to describe. The Japanese people were 
exhausted, they were hungry, their infrastructure was destroyed, all of their crack troops and their armament and their ships sunk in other parts of the Pacific. They were thin, they were hollow-eyed, and they had the look of total fatigue. They were a defeated people. I found out that I was assigned to the 81st Infantry Division. It was stationed in uh, Aomori, Japan. It was uh, several hundred miles north of Yokohama. The next day before getting on the train, several of the uh, soldiers, including myself, stopped at the small makeshift PX and bought a, a couple of cartons of cigarettes each we decided to raise a little money as we uh, trained through the country and the, doing a little black marketing. Our train stopped about every 15 to 20 miles at the at railroad stations. They were crowded with people, just hordes of people. It was the fall of uh, 1945, and they were still a year away from another crop. There was no food going into the cities. The city people had to board trains and any conveyance they could to get out further away from the city to get forage for anything to eat. And they, then they went back in the city to live. They just didn't have a home except the bombed out areas. Uh, when they'd see us holding the cigarettes out of the windows, they would come running to the train holding up a fistful of money. We bartered until the train started to pull away and, set, <clears throat> and we settled for the biggest wad of money. The country's most immediate post-war problem was one of sustaining life. At the about the third stop, we uh, dumb lucked into a new uh, marketing skill, so to speak. As the train started uh, pulling out of the station uh, during the exchange of the cigarettes and money, I held on to both the cigarettes and the money. Uh, a sheer stroke of genius. Nippon's 80 million people simply could not produce enough food to keep themselves alive. By that afternoon, we had uh, perfected this exchange so skillfully that the three of us, we could pull back at the, the money and the cigarettes back at the their train at the same time. The Japanese people seemed to reconcile themselves quickly to the fact that the war was over and they had lost. When we lost all our individual packages of uh, cigarettes to either uh, superior grips or mistiming of the train departure, we uh, stuffed the cartons full of uh, kind of a wood straw that was in the seats. We eventually lost the bogus cartons of cigarettes. It was at night, and we set about laughing and joking and counting our money. We had well over a thousand U.S. dollars each. We, we parlayed uh, six cartons of cigarettes into about uh, four thousand U.S. dollars. <laughs> we uh, we visioned ourselves as the as the James Gang of Northern Japan. The only difference uh, we didn't rob trains; uh, we robbed from the trains. It was a good day at the races. I was uh, very reluctant to tell that story about myself. I sit here with my uh, stomach full of uh, roast beef and my and money in my billfold, 
it seems like I'm revealing a bad uh, character flaw about myself. But I have to say in self-defense, uh, it's self-defense of my younger self, uh, you had to be there. It felt good and seemed right at the time. The next day, the train arrived in the area of Almori. The remaining recruits, which included me, the remaining soldiers, they kind of separated as to their abilities. Anybody over uh, 200 pounds and over six foot tall was automatically military police. The ones that are assigned to the military police uh, went to the uh, populated areas and then uh, I was assigned to the uh, military police escort guard I forget the, the unit number but we were sent into uh, the Tokyo the Yokohama area the uh, first six months the, uh, the occupation prostitution was legal so the uh, powers, powers enforced put me on the cabaret detail, which was certainly more interesting. There was a dance floor. It was kind of partially bombed, and the second story was open. For so many in, you get 20 dances and two quarts of beer. About this time, uh, they, they learned modern dance a little, a little bit of chitterbugging. During that time, our job was to go to these prostitution houses and check their health cards, which we didn't know a darn thing about because they're all in Japanese with a lot of red stamps on them, and keep up what they call pro stations. They consisted of dispensing of condoms and rice medicine, kind of a, looked like homemade soap. You had to have bathed with, had to have bathed with. We'd always do this in the daytime, so we wouldn't interrupt working hours. These girls were just young kids, mostly from the island of Hokkaido, which is a farming community. The people were poor. They would sell their daughters into prostitution. They'd sell them for so many yen. The girls worked that money off. I don't know what the deal was, but I'm sure it wasn't a very fair business transaction. Anyway, this one day, we were in this real nice whorehouse. I just want to call them a whorehouse. They had these quilts on these beds that were beautifully embroidered dragons. So we were checking these, these cards. And of course, the girls were very playful. They'd come up behind us and whack us with a pillow on the head. And, they were just, just kids. Anyway, this other MP that was with me, we kind of got fond of these two uh, beds with these dragons, these embroidered dragons on these quilts. So we, uh, we grabbed the quilts and threw them out the window. This was on the second floor and hopped down the stairs and put our quilts in and the, the girls were coming after us. But anyway, we got home and put these uh, dragon quilts on our beds and we look pretty pretty snappy anyway uh, everybody pays the price and about three weeks later 
<laughs> we got a bad case of lies. And uh, we, have, we learned our lesson. Uh, the, the powers to be requisitioned the main prison of Tokyo. It was a raise out in the country. And uh, myself and three other soldiers uh, were uh, assigned to go out and clean it up and get it ready for occupation. We woke up the next morning about uh, six o'clock and heard a loud humming noise, uh, just hundreds of voices. And you looked out the window and uh, the whole corridor below us, courtyard, which was uh, full of Japanese. They all came over to the prison knowing that we were, the U.S. was taking it over and uh, was looking for work. We handpicked about uh, 30 or 40 Japanese, mostly males, to be our workforce for the next couple of weeks. Uh, later, uh, <clears throat> we found out we had to uh, body search them when they left. We decided we had been better off picking some of the younger, prettier girls prettier girls. It took about uh, three or four, three to four weeks to clean the prison up and, and get it ship shape, so to speak. And uh, in that time, we were so, slowly filling the prison up. There were uh, approximately 600 prisoners. 300 were in there for death sentence, and the other 300 in for six months. Six monthers usually for black market or uh, some petty theft or insubordination. And the uh, death sentence prisoners were usually had, uh, they were probably two, two crimes uh, were the most common. It was rape and uh, murder. The Army didn't seem to believe in anything in between. It was either six months or death. The building was enclosed with a real tall fence, and we had one gate for ingress and egress. And that was uh, just took one soldier to guard our premises. One night I had that duty, and it was getting late, and uh, a young Japanese lady walked up to me, and she tried to speak English. She indicated she'd kind of like to learn English. We talked and laughed a little, and it got so we were kind of holding each other and squeezing. The Japanese don't believe in kissing. It's taboo, I guess. Anyway, they have other ways of uh, indicating they're, they were amorous. I didn't want to take her to the uh, barracks because there's probably 50 people sleeping in this one big room. We walked and got, in, got inside the walked inside the boiler room. It was warm, and uh, we we sat out on this platform or laid down on this platform. And, and we uh, uh, held each other and uh, did the natural thing to do. We, we, we consummated our lust. And it was uh, extremely enjoyable. It's obvious, I don't know how to describe a uh, sex scene, so you're going to have to handle that one, uh, Therese. My uncle did send me the tapes, but, you know, I had other things I had to do. And so I didn't get to work on them right away. When I did, I sat down and listened to them all the way through. The trip from San Francisco to Tokyo was a 
It was a completely different picture than the one that you've been told, which is of American soldiers giving out gum and candy, which they did do. But MacArthur was very particular about censorship. There was a total blackout of information due to MacArthur, who kicked out any journalists who seemed to be relaying information he didn't want people to know about. The first thing that the Occupy discussed with the occupiers was what to do about rape. And uh, the Japanese had set up uh, houses of prostitution in advance of the troops. There was a little card that was handed out. It was pink. And it said on one side, uh, alliterated um, in Japanese, where is the bar? And on the other side were price lists for the whorehouse. 20 yen, a buck and a quarter for the first hour, 10 yen for each additional hour, and all night for 50. If you pay more, you spoil it for all the rest. The MPs will be stationed at the doors to enforce these prices. Trucks will leave here each hour on the hour, and in caps, no matter how good it feels without one, be sure to wear one. Incidents of VD became so terrible in Japan, one in four servicemen had it at that point, that there was actually a shortage of penicillin in America because they needed so much of it. So MacArthur decided he was going to reverse his stance and make prostitution illegal. That was a bad idea. There was 40 rapes on an average before he changed his policy, and then 330 a day after that in 1946. There were two terrible incidences. One uh, was on April 4th when 50 GIs broke into a hospital in the Omori district and raped 77 women. And on April 11th, 40 soldiers cut off the phone lines of one of Nagoya's city blocks and entered a number of houses simultaneously, raping as many girls and women as they could between the ages of 10 and 55. There was a lot of havoc being wrought on the country by these young men. So my uncle was an MP in the largest prison in all of Asia, situated in Tokyo, and the U.S. was using it to collect all the prisoners across Asia and the Pacific to hold them there until the boat came for Fort Leavenworth. These are soldier prisoners, and they're American. These are not prisoners of war. These are American servicemen who have been convicted of crimes. Time frame now is about the uh, 1st of March in uh, 1946. Our prison system in the Yokohama area was uh, was getting out uh, outnumbered. We just could having too many prisoners. We're getting prisoners in from uh, just about every place. Our captain, Captain Glass, he put us on eight hours on and eight hours off. Some of the uh, posts that we were manning, and it took a half hour, 45 minute ride to get there, and a half hour, 45 minute ride to get back, if you were lucky. And that wasn't much time to sleep and recoup. It was a impossible situation. It, it, it couldn't last very long at that at that rate. To get more sleep, we started taking the prisoners out of the cell and letting them run free outside the wall. We would sleep in their beds. 
was a t- it was a crazy thing to do, but it was a good, we got so we we, we, could, we didn't know daylight from dark. And at that time, we had at this time it was getting towards summer. Uh, we would take the prisoners out uh, out of their cells, and they had to, and we had a space between the cell blocks. It was kind of a compound. They could do a, play basketball or or another popular event at that time was boxing. They'd always try to egg a couple big guys or people that were, didn't had a little disagreement to put their gloves on, and it was quite a show. Uh, it was just like kind of a cockfight. They were making side bets and which round the guy would get knocked out on. Anyway, there was about as much fighting in the audience as there was in the boxing area. It was a great entertainment as long as you weren't involved. Uh, every day, three times a day, we would uh, unlock all the doors and blow the whistle and the prisoners would step out into the corridor and we'd march them down to breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, in this hallway, which was about oh, 14, 15 feet wide, uh, the Japanese had uh, torture chambers. They were oak, oak boxes, looked a lot like phone booths. The idea of it was you couldn't sit down and you couldn't stand up. About six hours in these boxes and you certainly made a point with the prisoner. Anyway, we had them lined up in this hallway, so when we marched the prisoners by, they could hear these guys in there moaning and yelling and screaming and kind of turn them into mush. Uh, we were getting uh, more new prisoners than we were releasing, and the prison was really getting overcrowded. The uh, prison was the only prison for the 8th Army, which covered a good share of the Pacific and, of course, all of Japan. The duty was getting not only uh, boring, but it, it, it seemed to be getting a little more dangerous. Uh, they were roughing up some of the guards and, and a few things like that. I won't mention. Another prisoner that was uh, very dangerous and unruly and mentally disturbed was a a guy that was just serving six months. And his name, we didn't know his name, but we called him number six. He was in the first cell block in the sixth cell. But one day I was unfortunate enough to, to draw him as one of the workers. We'd take out about a dozen. We'd march him out the front gate and then march him almost around the prison. One day I had number six out and they were having a little bit of break and he got up and walked over towards me and he says, I'm gonna go over here to this whorehouse district and you're not gonna do a damn thing about it. And I just tucked the shotgun up right up underneath his throat and headed off safety. But my finger was just banging up against the trigger, you know, nervous. And he, we looked in each other's eyes about a foot or two apart. And he had the damnedest eyes. They were kind of, where the white was supposed to be, it was kind of yellow. He's just an evil man. We stared at each other, and I finally stared him down. And he's, he, 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 that was his lucky day, because he turned around and sat down. Anyway, he vowed to kill me, and obviously he didn't get the job done, but we definitely had more than a personality kind of conflict.
One day, the captain called a meeting for all the soldiers to meet. We met up in a, a large room in the auditorium. He commended us for being good soldiers and doing our job well and having a minimum of problems. Then towards the last of the talk, he dropped a bomb. He says, the prison is getting terribly overcrowded. He says he's going to start executing the prisoners, the ones in the death cells. The next four or five weeks were hell. He uh, got a group of Japanese carpenters and they hauled the lumber in. And they were working and banging and hammering and right smack between the two death cell, cell blocks. He ended up by draping the damn thing in, in black silk, which I thought was a, in bad taste. The uh, construction of the uh, hanging device right between the cell blocks was a very stupid idea. The prisoners got extremely nervous and uh, dangerous. As the uh, days rolled by, the idea of uh, we really going to execute the prisoners started to sink in. We had a attempted prison break or a prison break at least once or twice a week. If you were walking back to the prison and you were within a block or so, and the uh, siren, the prison break siren would go off. A uh, soldier in the MP outfit would turn around and go the other way. It was just for survival. We all started uh, spending more time, uh, our spare time, away from the prison. Otherwise, we'd be exposed to these uh, prison breakouts and, and a lot of unnecessary trouble. Well, the captain accomplished what he, what he set out to do, and that is uh, get more room in his prison. The uh, death sentence prisoners were were very hard to handle after that. They would uh, make hostile moves for you and threats, and it was just a miserable environment. Every day they were looking, uh, <clears throat> hanging in uh, some type of a, a threat. Got the idea, or got the. It sounded as if an, a portion of it was erased. The captain had accomplished what he set out to do. A confirming yet mysterious sentence. It's a way of presenting the fact without actually saying he executed these prisoners. Maybe he went on to explain, but then he changed his mind. I don't know. I could have asked him questions about why it was he ended his recordings at that point. Was there something he really wanted to say about what he had witnessed 
I wrote him a letter with a whole series of questions, but then I decided that I really should call him, which I never did. And of course, I regret that I didn't send the letter because about a week later, he killed himself. Hi, Therese. It's Monday morning, November 15th. Uh, stayed awake most of the, or not most of the night, but some of the night thinking of my experience that I didn't recall yesterday and, uh, and really uh, thought, what was this uh, tale really all about? And I feel that the uh, story is not only about the occupation, I came to this conclusion anyway, but of a defeated nation and a defeated people with a conquering people. It's uh, living together. It's, but as I look back on my actions and reactions, part of the story is about a person who just would not let the army interrupt his uh, life. That's it for Love and Radio. This episode featured the voices of Dawn and Therese Faboda, as well as musical contributions from Af Ursin, Mushio Funazawa, Mary Lattimore, Tashiwada with Yoshiwada and Friends, Biosphere, Leandro Fresco, Edward Artemiev, Jan Jelinek, Hyperspace Jelly, Osaya, Craig Leon, and Corey Fuller. For playlists of all the music you hear, check out loveandradio.org. Therese wrote a book about Don's experiences as an MP in Japan called Black Glasses Like Clark Kent, published by Grey Wolf Books. I'll have a link to it up on our website. Again, it's loveandradio.org. The episode was produced by Julia DeWitt with Stephen Jackson and Phil Demohofsky. Love and Radio is an independent project and a labor of love and radio and made possible thanks to our supporters on Patreon. Thank you. Extra special thanks to Ali Mothra Perry, Andrew Simmons, Casey Anderson, Chakrit Sudachan, Dan Palmino, Jacqueline Leake, Jason V, Joe Palmieri, Sam Huffman, Sandrew, Nick actually has to read this Schroeder, William Spears, and Edging Candy Tuft. I'm Nicholas Sardine Punch Punch Vanderkolk. Thanks for listening. <laughs>